Welcome back, friends. Welcome to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. That's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com. Coming to you tonight, as every night, here on Republic Broadcasting via the auspices of the Internet and or KHFX 1140 AM in Dallas, Fort Worth. So whenever, wherever, and however you're listening to my voice right now, thank you once again for tuning in for tonight's broadcast. And I think you'll agree with me, we had another very interesting week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio with a couple of thematic editions of the broadcast earlier in the week, and we had Madison Rupert of EndTheLie.com, and I've received quite a bit of positive feedback about that episode of the broadcast. And then, of course, last night we were talking to James Evan Pilato of FoodWorldOrder.com. So again, a lot of news and information, and that's really the point and the raison d'etre of this show, to try to cram as much information into to everyone's heads as possible, and I hope that this it usually does turn into some something of a data dump, and hopefully we get to take some time now and then to pause and reflect on this material as well, but it's also uh, important to get as much information out as we can, while we can, because as we all know, the door on the internet revolution and the alternative media revolution may be closing, and it may be closing even faster than we think with a lot of worrying signs about new legislation coming down the pipe that will seek to restrict people's online freedoms and perhaps curtail the internet in ways that really are unthinkable, or at least should be unthinkable to people who understand just how important the internet has been in enabling people to get connected and specifically get connected to this type of alternative information. And certainly that's my own case, and I imagine for many of you out there, it's your case. And even the fact that you're listening to my voice at all really wouldn't be happening if it wasn't for the wonders of the internet. What I am doing right now, broadcasting from my home here in Western Japan to you in the United States or wherever you are, truly would have been impossible even a few short years ago. So it is a truly amazing experience to be doing this, and I'm trying to make the most of it, so I hope you guys are out there as well. Now, this is the Friday night edition of Corbett Report Radio, so as you may or may not know by now, that's, that means it's time for Friday Night Highlights, where I spend the hour going over some of the uh, the golden oldies and the hidden treasures in the CorbettReport.com archives. Of course, now almost five years of material having been amassed there, all sorts of articles and interviews, videos, and podcast episodes that I've created and conducted in that time. And I think it's worth going back and highlighting some of those older stories and things that people may not have uh, heard in the first place or or may have fallen off the radar, because there's a lot of things that uh, that we learn on such a regular basis, and as I say, it's important to keep up with all of the latest news, but it is equally important to make sure that we understand that news and are able to situate it in its proper context, something that we can never do if we're always looking forward and never looking back. So I certainly hope that these Friday night highlight editions of the radio broadcast are helpful for you in encountering some of this work perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the second time, but at any rate, I hope it helps to situate some of this information in its proper context. And tonight on this edition of Friday Night Highlights, we're going to be dipping into the article archives of CorbettReport.com specifically. Again, almost five years' worth of articles that I've been writing in that time. And in recent months, people will notice that there have been a lot less articles, per se, on CorbettReport.com insofar as all of my videos, or at least the vast majority 
of my videos are in themselves really articles that I have made into videos. So they're both there in text and in video forms to try to make it as easy for everyone. But, uh, but I think many people perhaps don't associate the Corbett Report with articles in, uh, anymore. So I hope that uh, tonight on this edition we can, we can introduce you to some of the, uh, the articles that have been written over the past five years and, uh, and I think some very important information that deserves going over again. At any rate, we're coming up on the first break, so let's take a short breather, and when we come back, we will continue with Corbett Report Radio. Ain't got no money, ain't got no class, ain't got no skirts, ain't got no sweater. Welcome back to the broadcast. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting, and I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and tonight is Friday night, so that means it's time for Friday Night Highlights, where we dip into the archives of CorbettReport.com for old material that I think is still useful in helping to situate the current headlines in their proper context, and more on that in a moment, but tonight we're going specifically into the Articles tab of CorbettReport.com, and just as a proviso for people People who are going there for maybe the first time or have not really explored the articles section of Corbett Report, you'll notice it's not very well laid out at the moment insofar as only the latest articles of uh, 2010, 2011 are really there in uh, an accessible, easily accessible form and really into the WordPress front end of CorbettReport.com. As for the older articles, 2009, 2008, 2007, literally hundreds and hundreds of articles there that, uh, that either I wrote or I posted up. There are some guest articles that we used to post on CorbettReport.com. Don't do that anymore, but there are lots of uh, guest articles there in the archives. In order to access them, well, there are uh, what's called the 2009 Article Archive, the 2008 Article Archive, 2007 Article Archive. Basically, that's just a graphical interface that you can use to navigate through the ar- archives of the articles and uh, select them, and then you'll get the old-style HTML files of the old articles. So they're not very easy to, to get to. And some of the older articles, uh, because they're not entered into the WordPress part of CorbettReport.com, means that you can't search for them. Of course, there's a search bar at the top right of CorbettReport.com. Enter in your search term, and it'll bring up all of the any article or interview or video that relates to that subject, except uh, these older articles aren't entered into the system properly, so uh, they won't even show up. So I know that's something I I have to work on, and I will add it to my list of 18 trillion other things I should do on the website. But at any rate, let's uh, let's go into those article archives to try to show you at least a few articles, I hope, tonight that... I think, again, place some of the today's headlines in their proper context. And, of course, one thing that we are witnessing right now is the precipitous collapse of the Eurozone and the, well, I guess the inevitable knock-on effect that will have on the global economy. And it cannot be a good thing for the average person, but it can be a good thing for the average bankster. And that's an extremely important point. It's one that I make again and again, but it's one that we need to continue to make. And it's important to know that uh, I haven't just jumped on this bandwagon. I've been talking about this basically since the birth of the Corbett Report way back in 2007. You can go and listen to some of the very, very early podcast episodes about central 
banking and the whole scam that the banksters are playing with the world economy to get more on that. But um, but let's take a look at this article that I wrote back on the 12th of October of 2008, so over three years ago now. But I, I think, again, this, this article stands the test of time. This information is evergreen when you think about it because uh, really when you've got the the magic decoder ring, as it were, and you know about the plans, and you know you actually go and read the documents that the banksters wrote, and things like Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, and you get the real perspective of what's happening, you are able to understand the system to a point where you can make information and, and write about things that will not look like yesterday's news three years from now, the way that today's issue of the newspaper will, with all of its sugar-coated lies. But this article is titled, The Birth of the Global Dictatorship, Media Propaganda at Fever Pitch as Banker Takeover Proceeds. And, uh, of course, this article and all of the things I cite tonight you'll be able to find in the show notes for today's uh, broadcast at CorbettReport.com slash radio. And, of course, it'll be going up shortly after this broadcast airs. So, right now, let's get into this article. And it starts, quote, An emergency meeting taking place in Washington this weekend is bringing together finance ministers and central bankers from the group of seven nations, as well as their G20 counterparts. According to U.S. Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, the meeting is intended to discuss ways to further enhance our collective efforts to confront the crisis that has frozen credit markets around the globe. Now, the World Bank president is musing about a new global economic authority. The IMF chief is cheerleading the first coordination between advanced countries and the rest of the world, something the WTO hasn't been able to accomplish. And the CFR is relishing the chance to implement a global monetary, monetary authority, just like they've been writing about for years. And add to this the historic joint cut in interest rates by central bankers around the world last week. Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi's revelation that world leaders are considering suspending global markets while they rewrite the rules of international finance, and the startling plan for China to bail out America on condition that America socialize its banking system, and it seems the long-term plan to use this pre-engineered economic catastrophe to bring about new global systems of financial and governmental control is finally falling into place. This is, of course, precisely what the Corbett Report has predicted time and time and time again, in line with what other analysts have been saying for years. Not that you would understand this quest for global government for what it is by reading the corporate-controlled media. In an unprecedented piece of revisionist propaganda, the Wall Street Journal just published a short banking history of the United States that makes the outrageous argument that centralizing power in the hands of the bankers is in fact the solution to economic problems. It holds that the Great Depression came about because the Federal Reserve didn't have enough power not because the Federal Reserve's policies caused it, as even Fed Chairman Bernanke himself has admitted. The Wall Street Journal's myopic insistence that giving central banks more authority and control, despite the fact that they are leading us closer and closer to a hyperinflationary event, is patently ridiculous, but fits perfectly into the familiar ploy of providing preordained solutions to the problems they themselves have created. Perhaps the Wall Street Journal's ridiculous attempts to undermine Thomas Jefferson by portraying him as an economic Luddite. He opposed central banking systems that allowed bankers to wield control over the nation's finances, after all. Or an attempt to stop a renaissance in public understanding of economic history in its tracks. A growing awareness of just how central monetary policy and monetary reform has been in the course of world history 
aided by the explosion in popularity of documentaries like The Money Masters and Money as Debt, has brought quotes like this one from Thomas Jefferson back into widespread use. If the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Such tricks by the controlled corporate media are decreasingly effective, however. The ordinary citizens of the world have already internalized the fact that the six corporations that control 90% of the American media, including, of course, the Wall Street Journal, do not have the general public's interest in mind. After the media's dismal performance in cheerleading for the bailout, the public is less likely to buy the pro-banker propaganda of the Wall Street Journal. So too are the general public unwilling to fall for the phony solutions of global monetary authorities and economic institutions that are currently being proposed by the very people who caused the problem in the first place. Now that the scam has been exposed, the job is to make it known to the power elite that the public will not be fooled so easily. The public is aware that the international banksters have descended on Washington this week not to fix the problem, but to enter the final phase of the birth of the new world order of banking hegemony. Awaiting the pronouncements of the banksters from their weekend, weekend celebration with bated breath, the citizens of the world wonder, to paraphrase Yates, what rough beast slouches towards Washington to be born. Once again, that was The Birth of the Global Dictatorship, an article I wrote way back in October of 2008, of course in the immediate wake of the Lehman Brothers collapse, which precipitated what really is the, the next phase of the destruction of the world economy that we're still living through in this day and age. Of course, the contagion has now spread to the Eurozone, and that's where we have this new sovereign debt crisis that is taking the headlines in our current day and age. But back three years ago, People were very concerned about the, the global economy as a whole and the different types of systems that would have to be brought in in order to conquer this, uh, this economic depression. And it's extremely interesting to go and follow those links that are in that article uh, to some of those things that I talked about, uh, about the uh, historic joint cut in interest rates by central banks, the uh, uh, Berlusconi, who of course has just fled Italy, um, talking about suspending global markets while the international rules of finance are rewritten, and China agreeing to bail out America on condition that it socializes its banking system. I mean, just incredible stories that really do deserve our attention, even now, three years later, because of how momentous all of that was. And it is important to go back to that uh, that time in the wake of the Lehman Brothers collapse and look at what was going on and what was being proposed, because as this economic crisis deepens now in spreading to the Eurozone, as I say, we are likely to see more and more of this type of ploy. And I think if there's anything that I was guilty of way back in 2008 and earlier when I started the, the Corbett Report and my work doing this and spreading this information, it's that I had the mentality that I think a lot of people have when they start getting into this information, and understandably so, that this is all going to come about very quickly or it's all going to happen all in one go. But of course, this is not the way it works. It works in increments. It works in steps. These people, these banksters, have been using the principles of Fabian socialism, this incremental bit-by-bit, drop-by-drop, leading the public into the system they want to create, rather than trying to change the entire system overnight. Of course, that can 
can be a way that they implement the, the system of control, but it's not necessarily going to be the, the way. And in fact, it would probably be the least effective way for them to do it because when people are suddenly thrust into a new situation, they feel disoriented and they feel uneasy. But when they are led into it little by little and he has change here and a change there, led along by a phony complacent media that's trying to lull you to sleep, a lot of people will go with that. So we'll see how this continues to play out, but there in 2008, I think, are the bare bones of exactly what we're talking about. At any rate, well, we're coming up on another break, but just before we go, one more thing to mention about that article. It includes, includes that Jefferson quotation, which I now know and understand to be a false quotation. Jefferson almost certainly said nothing of the sort. And for more information on that and other false quotations, please see episode 174 of my podcast. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back here on Corbett Report Radio. Welcome back to the program. This is Corbett Report Radio, and I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And tonight we are going through the article archives of CorbettReport.com to highlight some of the articles that I've written in the past that I think are still relevant even now, even years later in some cases. And if you haven't yet done so, please use this as an opportunity, an excuse, if you will, to go and take a look at CorbettReport.com slash articles and explore some of the dozens and hundreds, really, of articles that I've written over the years including this one that I thought I would highlight tonight. Why not? We're on the cusp of Christmas 2011, so let's take a look at an article that I wrote back in Christmas season of 2007, December 5th, 2007 to be exact, when a very interesting new toy caught my eye and I decided to write an article about it. The article is called Visa Buying Ads in Kids' Games, The Cashless Society Cometh. Quote, this Christmas shopping season, parents will have an interesting choice to make in the board game section of the toy store, whether to buy the updated Game of Life in which children now play with Visa-branded credit cards, or the updated Monopoly in which children buy property with a Visa-branded debit card. If board games aren't your children's thing, perhaps they'd appreciate a Barbie with a credit card or a Hello Kitty debit card. It seems Visa and other financial institutions are conditioning our children early to accept the coming of the cashless society. Those still in doubt are invited to cogitate on the not-so-subtle courting of the prepubescent set in Visa's new ad campaign. And there's a link to an ad campaign that was just uh, new th- at that time in December 2007. The cashless society is a description of the future economy which no longer uses cash. Paper has become a thing of the past and plastic is used for everything. What could be more convenient than plastic? Certainly not cash, which can transmit viruses, or worse. Indeed, just about the only thing better than paying with plastic is paying with a small RFID microchip implanted in your arm. Does the cashless society sound far-fetched? Just ask Peter Aliff, the president of Visa, who earlier this year said we can expect to see the cashless society in place by 2012. In fact, he even suggested that retailers might soon levy surcharges on customers paying with cash. 
It's quite obvious to see how the end of cash would be good news for banks, financial institutions, and credit card companies. But why then is government pushing for the end of cash? And should citizens be worried when government and big finance team up to create a system in which everything you ever purchase can be tracked and logged in a database? And then the article finishes with a link to a video that I highly suggest you watch. It was included as part of Aaron Russo's Freedom to Fascism, and it's about an imaginary pizza call in an imaginary future universe where everything is part of a database. And I think it is uh, a good sign, a very nice way of demonstrating what there is to be worried about in this database society. But there you go. There's a little uh, article that I thought I would bring to your attention this Christmas season about seemingly innocuous children's games that in fact have much, much more going on to them, including the uh, indoctrination of our youth with the idea of the cashless society, which unfortunately we're seeing. Well, we're seeing the indoctrination on so many different levels, but to see it in the youth is especially scary because, of course, the social engineers know that in order to capture uh, the society, you really only need to capture the youth. And within a generation, the society will be yours. And it seems, and so it starts off innocuous with the, just you know, Visa-branded credit cards and children's games, but it really does represent something much sin- more sinister. And I, I trust that most of you out there will see that. But while we're on the note of children's uh, toys and Christmas season and shopping and all of that. I'm sure many of you out there are doing your or finishing up, hopefully, your Christmas shopping or maybe you're just starting to think about it like myself. At any rate, whatever you are planning to do for this holiday season, I certainly hope that uh, if you have the ability that perhaps you'll consider signing up for a subscription to the Corbett Report at CorbettReport.com slash support where you can sign up to become a subscriber that is to pay a monthly 100 Japanese yen a fee of uh, basically a donation to ensure that Corbett Report can continue coming and all of these articles and interviews and videos and radio broadcast and my podcast and all of that media can continue coming out. I am an independent, completely uh, independent and listener-supported media host, so I truly do depend on your support and to all of those people who have signed up to be a subscriber, thank you so much. Of course, when you do subscribe to CorbettReport.com by signing up with the PayPal, uh, you will get a monthly e-newsletter, and the first edition has just shipped out this past month, uh, December 2011, so if you uh, sign up between now and the end of December, you'll still get that first edition delivered to your email inbox. It has uh, news analysis and Roundup by myself. It has uh, recommended reading and viewing. It has a subscriber-exclusive video. And it has discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, including my 2009 Video Archive DVD and my brand-new Data DVD Volume 1, which has every part podcast art, uh, episode, every article, every interview, every video that I created between the birth of the Corbett Report in mid-2007 all the way to the end of 2008 literally uh, pushing six gigabytes of data, just an incredible amount of media, hundreds and hundreds of hours of media there for your listening and viewing and reading enjoyment. So I hope that you do take advantage of the discount that is available in the e-newsletter at uh, in the December 2011 first ever edition of the subscriber e-newsletter. It's a 50% discount on uh, the Corporate Report DVDs. So I hope you do sign up and take advantage of that. And I, uh, do, once again, truly can't do this without your support. So for all those people who have bought a DVD and or 
signed up as subscribers. Thank you so much. You truly do make all of this possible. And on that note, let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue going over the articles at CorbettReport.com. Welcome back, friends. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio, and tonight on Friday Night Highlights, we're going over some of the articles from the article archive on CorbettReport.com. And again, for people who are maybe checking into CorbettReport.com for the first time, there are tabs at the top of the uh, the page, right underneath the title banner, where you can find uh, the articles and the interviews and the videos and the radio program and all of those broken down by category, so just click on the Articles tab to begin exploring that, and there's a drop-down menu from which you can explore some of the older articles and, of course, access the 2009, 2008, and 2007 article archives, so you can go and start looking at some of these articles for yourself, and again, there are literally hundreds of them to go through, and uh, some of them are very much dated by this point and have been superseded by by newer information, as inevitably happens with news articles, but some of them are more like editorials and can be read and reread, and more can still be gleaned from them. So that's what we're doing tonight. We're picking out just a few examples of articles that I think are important to go over and to not forget, because uh, obviously we've said many times before, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it, and it is none, no less true today than it was well, at any other time in our history. So let's start exploring some of that very recent history that still is very relevant. And we're going to take a look at something called the Security and Prosperity Partnership, which was something that I started getting into almost immediately from the launch of the Corbett Report. Uh, It was an issue that had been on my radar, obviously, as a Canadian. I was quite concerned by this proposed merger of Canada, the United States, and Mexico, which was being well, obscured by the process of the SPP, this this agreement that had been signed in Waco, Texas in 2005 between Prime Minister Harper and President Bush of the U.S. and President Fox of, the, uh, of Mexico. And this process basically made the entire merger of these three governments into a bureaucratic process by which the legislatures of the three countries had absolutely no say over it. And that, to me, was extremely disturbing. Even more disturbing was the fact that it wasn't being reported on basically at all in the mainstream press other than obligatory mentions here and there. But there was no in-depth analysis of what this SPP was or how it was working. So that was one issue that I was on right from the very beginning of the podcast. And uh, interestingly enough, within a week, I'm sorry, within a month of me starting CorbettReport.com, I started it, I launched it in June of 2007. By July of 2007, I had a listener to my podcast actually send send me some documents that he had obtained by the, well, the Canadian equivalent of the Freedom of Information Act. It goes by a slightly different name up in Canada, but it's the same general concept. Any citizen can go and request government documents. And uh, the people who work in that office are more than happy, as this person told me, to provide people with those documents. And they just wish more people would take advantage of it, as do I. And he used that, uh, that privilege, or that right, really, to, uh, to secure some documents about the SPP from the Canadian government. And there had been a ministerial meeting of this Security and Prosperity Partnership in February of 2007, 
and he secured the meeting minutes for that meeting. And it was really quite a coup because there were some really startling things revealed in those meeting minutes. So I wrote an article about it based on those documents which he emailed to me, and almost immediately that article got picked up in a big way by a lot of very big uh, websites and publications, and uh, that was really, I think, the first major exposure of the Corbett Report overall. And although the SPP is now pretty much officially dead, it kind of I, uh, died a slow and quiet death back in 2009 when basically the initiative was taken off of the agendas of the three governments. But of course, all of the things that the SPP was doing are still going on. They're just going on under different auspices, under different names, because the SPP itself had become the lightning rod for opposition and activism. And basically, this this idea, this merger of the North American Union, as the SPP said in its own documents from the 2006 meeting in Banff, beautiful Banff, Canada, near my hometown of Calgary, uh, they said that this agenda had to, to play out in a secretive way. It had to be a covert thing away from the glare of public scrutiny. So that was what the SPP was about. By 2009, it was way too, too public. So they had to take it even further underground. And they're still continuing to do many of the very things that were talked about in those SPP meetings. And anyone who watched my very recent video, in fact, it just went up on youtube.com slash Corbett Report and youtube.com slash Global Research TV. Uh, anyone who's been watching that will see that uh, there's just been a brand new border agreement signed by Prime Minister Stephen Harper of Canada and President Obama of the U.S. that will basically just continue along this process of merging the two governments. And, and it was my point in that video, and it's my point here today, that the SPP was only one part of the stepping stone towards that process. This new border agreement, again, is just one stepping stone along that path towards the complete merger of the governments and the erosion of any national sovereignty that we enjoy as we move towards a regional and then a global government world, which I think we all know is not a happy holding hands and singing kumbaya utopia. It's going to be something much more tyrannical and devastating for the average person. So having said all of that, back in July of 2007, one month after the launch of CorbettReport.com, I wrote this article called A Peak Behind Closed Doors, Recently Released Documents Uncover Powerful Business Influence Over SPP Process. And it reads in part, quote, the Corbett Report has obtained minutes from the highly secretive Security and Prosperity Partnership Ministerial Meeting held in Ottawa on February 23, 2007. This meeting, attended by political heavyweights from Canada, the United States, and Mexico, received much criticism in the Canadian press at the time for being needlessly secretive. This was, in fact, the main focus of a Canadian press report from, from that day headlined, Officials Play Down Criticism That Talks Too Secretive, which noted how North American ministers deflected criticism that they had consulted only big business for their talks on trade and security rules, suggesting Friday that there are different venues for public interest and labor groups to raise their concerns and suggestions. Indeed, the government officials present at the press conference were forced to address issues of secrecy when the press conference was disrupted by protesters who were angry about the secretive nature of the talks. Such criticisms were not without their merit. In attendance were such key government representatives as Peter McKay, Foreign Affairs Minister of Canada, Stockwell Day, Public Safety Minister of Canada, Condoleezza Rice, U.S. Secretary of State, Michael Chertov, U.S. Homeland Security Chief, and Patricia Espinoza, Mexican Foreign Minister. 
On their agenda, according to the CP article, were matters traditionally left to elected representatives to debate in legislative settings, including a meeting devoted to finalizing a North American plan on dealing with a flu pandemic and another on a common regulatory environment in all three countries. The secrecy surrounding the talks comes as no surprise to those who have been following the Security and Prosperity Partnership. The SPP is carrying out a merger of the three sovereign North American nations in what has been euphemistically dubbed a dialogue in order to commit an end run around the legislative process which would have made such a merger merger politically impossible. The process started when then-Prime Minister Paul Martin of Canada, then-President Vicente Fox of Mexico, and President George W. Bush of the United States announced the creation of the SPP at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, on March 23, 2005, at a press conference which was heavy on hyperbole and scant on details. Facts coming out of the subsequent Leaders' Summit in Cancun, Mexico, on March 31, 2006, were similarly sparse. The official websites of the SPP from all three countries, the Canadian, the American, and the Mexican, provide few details of how government representatives are working to carry out the SPP's initiatives. Indeed, the SPP completely circumvents the democratic process since it is a dialogue, not a treaty, or even an agreement between the three governments, meaning government representatives can claim they are attending SPP meetings as private citizens. The office of Stockwell Day refused even to confirm Mr. Day's attendance at the Secretive North American Forum meeting in Banff, Canada in September 2006, saying it was a private meeting, and generally I don't confirm private meetings of the minister. The minutes of the February 23rd meeting, obtained under the Access to Information Act and released on June 21, 2007, show a continuing cloak of secrecy around matters of national importance. The most noticeable aspect of the document are the blacked-out passages. There is not a single section of the document that has not had information excised at the behest of the ministers, citing the sections of the Act dealing with information obtained in confidence and information which could be injurious to the conduct of international affairs and the defense of Canada. What little information has not been excised proves what protesters feared at the time, that business interests wield a great deal of influence over the entire process while regular citizens are left out of the discussion, permitted, not permitted even, to learn the details of the SPP's implementation. The most startling passage of the document concerns the North American Competitiveness Council, which the minutes themselves note was a body created by leaders in 2006 to give the private sector a formal role in providing advice on how to enhance competitiveness in North America. The idea that business interests are really in control of the process is suggested in the following passage from the documents. Exchanges following a formal presentation of the NACC's report uncovered frustration relating to the private sector's seeming inability to influence the pace of regulatory change from the bottom up. The subtext was clear. In the absence of ministerial endorsement, bureaucracies are unlikely to act on the more challenging recommendations. The complex and far-reaching nature of the recommendations suggests that governments will need ample time to review and consult internally and trilaterally, but it seems clear that the NACC will be looking for an early commitment to moving forward quickly. Okay, we'll end the quotation there. There are a few more paragraphs going into more detail about some of the characters and bodies behind the SPP process as it stood 
in there in July of 2007 and an exhortation to contact your member of parliament to the Canadians out there about this whole process. But again, that is uh, over four years old now, four and a half years. And as I say, the SPP itself is dead and buried, supposedly, but it's its spirit, its agenda, everything that it stood for, all of the policies it was trying to implement live on just under different names and uh, completely under the radar so that it can't even attract the protests that we saw, for example, in Montebello, Quebec later on that year in 2007 in August, which attracted huge protests and created controversy when the Quebec Provincial Police tried to slip in some undercover police as quote-unquote protesters who were walking menacingly to the police line holding rocks and uh, were unmasked and and, uh, basically called out right there in public by one of the union leaders who was organizing a protest and the police had to come out uh, days later and confirm, yes, those men were working for us. So that was a big scandal. A lot of scandals emerged from the SPP, so they had to move it underground. But uh, I also had the chance to interview the man who who actually got those documents to me, the Access to Information Act in Canada being used to get those documents. His name was Stephen Harder. I'm sorry, not Stephen Harder. That's Stephen Harper, the Prime Minister, Chris Harder. And I had the chance to interview him in the wake of that to talk about the process of getting those documents, which I think is important to understand because it is a vastly underutilized tool in Canada and in the United States where you have the Freedom of Information Act and in all of the other countries that have similar legislation. So let's just listen to an excerpt from that interview where I'm talking to Chris Harder about his uh, experience getting those documents out of the Canadian government. Let's get a little bit into the documents that you uncovered then. Um, What documents did you uh, uncover in your research, and uh, how did you do that? Well, the ones, again, that they uh, they were released to me through the uh, Freedom of Information Act in Canada, Uh, the minutes of the meeting, they have a summary, they have a pace of progress, uh, some priorities. Uh, Another section is the Competitiveness Council, and uh, the, the next steps, what they want to accomplish. So, um, I mean, that was just, I decided one day, I said, well, uh, you know, I can't find the information I'm looking for on the Internet. I'm just going to ask for it and see what happens. So it's, you know, filing for freedom of information is really simple. Uh, you can easily find, the, you know, on the web, again, uh, the, lo- the uh, website with the information, uh, how to do it. There's a phone number. I basically was in email contact um, with the folks at the office. It's, interna- it's internal for foreign or foreign affairs. Yeah, foreign affairs and international trade Canada. Um, they, uh, they emailed with me, and I made a payment of five dollars Canadian. Uh, processing took about you know eight, four to six weeks, and and, uh, it, and suddenly the documents arrived. Excellent. Well, it's, it's certainly good good to see that some of this information is starting to get out there. Um, so what do you think is the, is the next step for um, people who are concerned about the Security and Prosperity Partnership? Well, are you familiar with the Deeble Canada website? Yes, I have seen that website. Okay. Uh, on that website, we recently posted some information. Again, uh, it's ongoing. Uh, coverage of the meetings and what what was what was discovered and, and what's upcoming and so there is a, a timeline uh, of documents that's on that website. Um, so a lot of Canadian contributors um, and uh, the direct uh, direct action that has to be taken now, uh, having this information, is we need to again 
uh, everyone uh, needs to alert their local news media, or national news media of all kinds, uh, whether it be written or, or televised or broadcast on the internet or radio. Uh, you know, make this, ask questions. Why aren't you covering this issue? We need to get this information out to the people. Um, but even that, people have to be interested in tuning into this. We have to really find a way to get the masses uh, fired up about it. Uh, really fired up because they don't seem to be. They're like, yeah, you know, we don't know about this or, oh, you know, it's always going to be like that. There's nothing we can do. So we really need to get the people excited and motivated about, let's do something, let's save our countries, and uh, let's put an end to this nonsense. All right, once again, that was myself talking to Chris Harder way back in 2007 about his experience using the Canadian Access to Information Act. And as I say, that is a vastly underutilized tool in just about every country because there is so much valuable information that can be gleaned from documents like that. And of course, as we see even in that example, well, of course, they blacked out all of the most important information. That's to be expected. And in a certain way, that can even be the story if if you're... Uh, journalistically inclined and want to get some of these documents out, well, the fact that they're blacking out information because it's a threat to the defense of Canada when it has nothing to do with that or, or whatever lame excuse they use to try to black out information, that in itself is a story and one that makes a lot of people, a lot of citizens, rightly angry because they do have a right to know what their government is doing since it is supposedly controlled by them. But at any rate, I once again would exhort people who are in a position to do so, please, if you have an issue that you want to know more about, try to access information. Use your FOIA laws or whatever they are in your country to try to get that information out of the government because that's what it is all about, trying to get as much information as we can so that we can effectively combat what's happening. And although the SPP story in one way is kind of a sad story because it, it has only further cloaked and taken on its shroud of secrecy and gone under the radar, well, at least we were able to get them to do that. We, they couldn't just do it out in the open uh, as they were attempting to do with these ministerial meetings and other high-profile meetings. They were getting stormed and get, there were too many protests, so they had to take it even further underground. Well, in some ways that's a bad thing. In some ways it's a good thing because ultimately the people win in that argument. All right, well, again, all of, all of those articles and those documents themselves can be downloaded from CorbettReport.com. And, of course, there will be a link to that article, and the link to the documents is contained in that article. So I'll put that up on the show notes for today's episode. But we're coming up on a break, so let's take a short breather, and we'll be right back with the closing minutes of tonight's Corbett Report Radio. closing minutes of what was another very interesting week here on Corporate Report Radio. And so I would just want to once again thank all of you for taking your time to invest your mental energies 
in something that I hope is valuable, and that's information, the information that the controlled corporate media and even the pseudo-alternative media that's secretly funded by Soros and the like and, uh, and all of those types of outlets, well, they don't want you to know this information because this is the information that makes people actually effective in countering what's going on. And as we were talking about last night on the program, once people get involved and start actively detaching themselves from the systems of control and taking on that mindset that they have to become independent once again, not interdependent, not dependent, but independent, then we can start to achieve the true liberty that we are all seeking. And I certainly hope that people will use the Corbett Report as the resource as it certainly is at this point, and not only for the work that I've done myself, not only my words and my uh, my articles or my videos, but also the links to all of the information that are contained there. I think there's a lot of very important information that are contained in those links that I've accrued now for four and a half years, and I certainly hope, again, that you're using it as a resource. Because, again, I think information is just that. It's, it is a resource for us to use uh, for our own purposes and to, and to take out of it what we will. So even if you don't agree with everything that I say, that's fine. I don't expect people to agree with everything that I say on every issue. But at the very least, I hope I can provide you with links and sources for information that you might not have otherwise encountered that you can use to help spread to other people. And that's what it is all about. And just on a uh, closing personal note here, it's interesting for me going through the article archives of CorbettReport.com and looking at many of the uh, the early articles I was writing. There was even a period of time in the late summer of 2007 when I was consciously trying to write an article a day, which was uh, it tur- turned out to be too much to, uh, to, to, to actually accomplish what with my full-time job, but, uh, but it was an interesting exercise and I did get some interesting articles written during that period of time. And I wish I could have the time to go back and do that again because I was certainly um, well. I enjoy writing the articles, and it's interesting because as uh, even as a child, I think what I always really wanted to do was write. I, that was my ambition for a very long time. Except I just always thought of it in the context of fiction. I was going to write fiction, but then I woke up and I realized that the reality that we see going on around us is a million times more deranged, more amazing, more incredible than the fiction of the wildest imagination. So I ultimately ended up doing the Corbett Report, and in a way I am still using my my language and my writing and my abilities there to try to do what I'm doing, but it's in a vastly different way than I ever imagined. So once again, I thank you for being along for the ride with me, and again, for all of your feedback and support that come in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. Again, I couldn't do it with all, without all of you out there supporting me and supporting this work. So once again, we'll leave it there for this week. It's been another great week here on Corbett Report Radio, but we have even more coming up for next week. And of course, we'll also have our regular Thursday night segment with James Evan Pilato in the latter half of next week's Thursday uh, edition of Corbett Report Radio. And the next Friday, uh, more Corbett Report highlights. And then getting into the Christmas New Year season, I will for sure be taking the week off between Christmas and New Year. I'm not sure about other dates at this point. It really depends on RBN schedule as well, so I will keep you informed about that next week, but until then, thank you all for listening, and please take care.